Hey, we are beginning our Advent series, and um, as we're just getting into this season, we want to recommend to you two uh, devotional tools that may help you in this uh, sort of historically, habitually over-busy um, period in, in our year. Uh, we, don't be, we don't want to be ruled by that. We actually need to be, in fact, more intentional about sort of slowing down and uh, reading uh, about God's promises, uh, being together in your household with your family, uh, your roommates, whatever, and, uh, and, and paying attention to the gospel. So in your, uh, in your bulletin on that page that says Get Connected, you'll see devotionals for Advent right in the middle of the panel. If you've got little kids at home, we want to commend to you, they don't have to be little, even, you know, just kids at home. Uh, we'd like to commend to you Marty Machowski's little book called uh, Prepare Him Room. Um, we, just, uh, we just bought this and, and got it for our household. You can order it online and, um, and have that uh, to, to give you about three to four devotionals each week of Advent. It's not every, every day, um, you know, it sort of allows for the fact that, you know, maybe we can Try to bat about 500 if you're in the practice of doing family worship. Uh, or if that's a new thing for you, this would be a great tool to get into that. It kind of gives you a great outline, and, um, and, and you can read through that together as a family. It's got different activities and some songs you can sing and things like that. Uh, personally, if, uh, if you just need a, a personal devotional tool, uh, we want to commend to you John Piper's online resource. You, it's a PDF, and you can read that. Uh, it's called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, a very John Piper-esque title. Uh, we appreciate that. And that will give you a, a daily a devotional that you can use uh, for your own benefit, okay? So just some, some tools for you during the Advent season so that um, you can grow and not miss uh, the glory uh, that God has in store for us. As we take this season in the church calendar to to anticipate uh, and, and remember Christ came, but not only that, to anticipate and remember that Christ is coming again. We're going to be doing that with a fourfold series called The Promise of the Gospel, and then next week we're going to look at the prophecy of the gospel. Uh, the third week of Advent, we'll talk about the purpose of the gospel, and then right before Christmas, we'll conclude with the proclamation of the gospel. This morning, as we focus on the promise of the gospel, we're in Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning of your Bible. Uh, so please turn to Genesis 3. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. Would you stand in honor of God's Word? <clears throat> and they, uh, that is Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, who gave you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray for your blessing on your word to us this morning. Uh, Help us to hear your promise, uh, your promise of grace to us, your promise of truth, uh, ultimately your promise of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. God makes four key statements in this passage that I want to focus on. He, he, uh, he asks three questions to Adam and to Eve. Uh, if, I mean, I know this is a familiar passage to most of us, but if, if you're new to the church or if you're new uh, to the Bible, uh, to, to Christianity, uh, this, this episode is taking place immediately after God has created all things, created Adam and Eve, he created them good, and, and very good, in fact. And Adam and Eve were, were special among creation because they were intended to be God's very unique image bearers. In doing so, uh, and, and in a mysterious way that you know, God's providence and, and human responsibility you know, mesh, God gave Adam and Eve free will, so they weren't puppets, and they could choose whether or not they would love him or turn from him. And, and tragically, they turned from him. And they expressly did what, what he had told them not to do in, in eating from this tree. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But, but this, this passage happens immediately after their betrayal, immediately after that rebellion. And, uh, and we see God speaking three questions to Adam and Eve, and then he makes a statement. Uh, to the serpent. So let's start with this problem that we see that Adam and Eve have, have rebelled and how God addresses that problem in these three questions, and then we'll, we'll turn to the promise. Um, how, how, careful, how careful are you with your, your actions and, and your words? Like, how intentional are you when you think about what to do and, and, and what to say? I think, I think for the most part, we're, we try to be mindful of, of what we do and what we say, but you know, there's, there's moments when we get it right, feel good. When I have the right thing to say at the right moment, I feel like, oh, okay, nailed it. Or if I feel like, yeah, I, I did that well, you know, handled that situation properly, you know, thankfully it went well. Um, and those moments feel good, right? But I don't know if, if you're like me, but I, I sort of suspect that for most of us in this room, perhaps all of us, those are the kinds of moments that are, are the exception instead of the rule. Because ordinarily, no matter how intentional I want to be, I mean, I'm not even, I can't even be intentional about my intentionality. I want to be more intentional. But even when I'm trying to be intentional, often the best I can do is sort of this clumsy effort to do the right thing. Or 
uh, if it comes to, like, to what, I'm, what, what should I say in this moment, I'm like, I'm always second-guessing myself. I always come away from that situation going, oh, I wish I'd said it this way or I wish I'd said that. Like every Sunday. <laughs> and, and the times when we sort of have that ballet-like gracefulness to our, our actions, and the times when we say exactly the right thing at the right moment, right, that's the exception instead of the rule. And the trick, though, is that we tend to project our experience onto God. And we begin to think, we suspect, God's a lot like me. And he kind of stumbles through eternity, trying to come up with the right thing to say, sort of clumsily you know, acting on, in time and in space with his people or whatever. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is, his intentions are perfect. And his actions are perfect. And his words are perfect. And when you see him move toward Adam and Eve in their rebellion and in their sin and in their shame... What we're going to see and what we're going to hear, what we've heard in this passage, what we've seen in this passage, is God's intentional pursuit and his grace and his truth communicated to Adam and Eve. Nothing is just sort of on the fly. Nothing is accidental. And so I want you to see the beauty of this intentionality coming, coming uh, toward Adam and Eve. He pursues them. First thing you need to notice, he's walking toward them. He's in the garden, he's pursuing them, and where are Adam and Eve? They're behind a tree. They're hiding from him, and he's coming toward them. And God asks them a question. Where are you? Right? Okay, so he could have done a couple of different things. Like, don't just read that and go, well, of course, that's exactly uh, what what he would say. Don't um, miss the fact that there's some other things that could have been said by God, um, you know, I'm thankful, for instance, that we do not see in chapter 3 God saying, Adam and Eve, get over here, right? Like this expression of God's anger and irritation. Get over You don't read that, uh, nor do you read, Adam and Eve, get out of here, you know, God's rejection, just, you know, judging and condemning them. You don't read, uh, third, third what if, uh, you don't read, Adam and Eve, how could you do this to me? You know, as if God was ever capable of self-pity. Um, and lastly, and perhaps most tragically, I'm, I'm very thankful that what we don't read is silence and indifference. A God that could care less what they did or how they lived and it just left. Instead, what you get is a God who comes to Adam and Eve and he asked him a very simple question to, to kind of get the conversation started. Where are you? Where are you? 
um, we, should, we should know, uh, I hope it's not a stretch to, to know that that's, um, it's not a literal question. Like God's not ignorant of, of their location. He knows exactly where they are. Um, so what he's doing is he's using this sort of rhetorical question, right? Uh, in asking Adam and Eve, you know, specifically Adam, where are you? What God's doing is he's putting the question back on Adam. Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know where you are, Adam? Do you, do you know the situation that you're in? God pursues Adam and Eve graciously coming toward them, not judging them, not rejecting them, not making it about him and his self-pity. Uh, and instead of being silent and indifferent, he is pursuing them with grace and with truth. He wants Adam and Eve to know the truth of their situation. Do you know where you are? Do you know what's going on? Do you know the severity of what's happened here? Do you know where you are spiritually? Do you remember the words that whoever eats from this tree will surely die? Do you know that the penalty for sin is death? Do you understand that spiritually you are in a terrible place? Do you know where you are relationally? Do you understand that sin is, uh, I like how one author put it, Sin is fundamentally antisocial. Um, relationally, there's a rift, right? Pro- in proximity to God, Adam and Eve are trying to get away from God. Do you know where you are, Adam? Do you know where you are, Eve? We're estranged now, alienated. Um, do you know where you are psychologically? Do you know where, you're, do you know where shame comes from? This sense of inadequacy, I don't measure up, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, all these things, all that, all that came rushing into the human soul right after that rebellion. Do you know where you are emotionally? Afraid? Anxious? Angry? Scared? Confused? You know where you are like physically, physiologically. Can you imagine the, the nervous sweat, the, the pit in their stomach, you know, just the trembling and the shaking in that moment? Do you know where you are? Do you understand the seriousness of this situation? God is coming to them, graciously pursuing them, and he's coming with the truth of their situation. And then he... He moves on in verse 10, and you hear Adam's response. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So God asks Adam, who told you? You were naked. Like, when your fourth grader comes home from school and casually says a word that has four letters in it and shocks your, your ears and you go, what? Where did you hear that word? 
well, so-and-so from, you know, school or on the playground or next door or whatever. Like, remember in the Christmas story, uh, little Ralphie getting his, his mouth washed out with soap. Where did you hear that word? So God, I can sort of see this, you know, God our Father asking his child, like, where did you learn the concept of nakedness as something shameful? How did that happen, right? And in that question, trying to evoke from Adam a response. Adam, let's talk. Let's have an honest, truthful conversation about your situation. And God's pursuing Adam and trying to move in and trying to bring some, some, um, some restoration to what's happened. And God says and makes, makes it very clear, the truth is, yes, I told you not to eat from the tree. I made that, com- that command very clear. Nonetheless, you know, you've rebelled against me. You've sinned and re- uh, rejected that commandment. And we now need to see how Adam responds, right? God wants to hear Adam's response. God wants to to hear how Adam is going to process what's happened. So how does Adam do? Uh, Well, let's just acknowledge at first he doesn't deny it. I mean, that's one option, I guess. Adam could have said, nope, never did it. You didn't see me do it. I I didn't do it. And he could have lied about it, but instead he actually does say, yeah, I, I I ate it. I ate the truth. I ate the fruit. But what we don't see is Adam taking any responsibility. He, instead, um, he says, well, this woman that you gave to be with me, um, she gave me the, the fruit, and, uh, and I ate it. And furthermore, you know, she didn't just give me the, the fruit, but you gave me the woman. So maybe I, through, you know, a process here, maybe it's sort of your fault, uh, God, for giving me the woman who gave me the fruit and so on. You get this blame-shifting thing going on. So on the one hand, Adam is not denying that he ate, but he certainly isn't taking responsibility. And so there's sort of a little bit of truth there, but not a lot of it. Instead, there's blame going on. Uh, And then also, you don't see him ask for any grace. You don't see him ask for forgiveness. You don't see him say he's sorry. Uh, And it's a very troubling response from Adam. God in his grace and his truth turns to Eve in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So God is pursuing Eve as well with grace and truth, trying to say, let's have an honest conversation about what's happened here. I'm here. I'm not rejecting you. I want to hear what's true. And Eve, again, like like Adam, uh, I guess she's taking his lead. Yeah, she confesses. She doesn't deny that she ate it. But she does exactly the same thing that Adam did in trying to blame you know, the serpent and not accepting responsibility for what she did wrong, right? And there's, there's, there's a little bit of truth, but not much. There's blame shifting, and there's no request for grace. There's no apology. There's, there's no request for forgiveness. So how would you rate their repentance? right? On a scale of one to five, let's play a game. Rate their repentance. Uh, On a scale of one to five, five being, man, that's some really good repentance. And one being, that's like the worst repentance I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Where would you rate Adam and Eve's response? Like way down here, right? Like 0.5 if we're candid. So 
they don't do a very good job of receiving grace, asking for grace, nor do they do a very good job of telling the truth uh, to themselves or, or to God or to one another. And so they miss God's cues, uh, they get it wrong, and, uh, and let me ask you, if, if this, if you were, if somebody had sinned against you like this, did something explicitly against your desires, you said, hey, don't do this, in fact, if you've even got the authority to command somebody not to do uh, something, and they just deliberately defy you and go and do that very thing, and then you graciously and with truth go and approach them and say, okay, we need to talk. And if somebody responded to you like this, well, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't my fault. Man, it was this that happened and this happened. And this person over here is who you should be breathing down their neck. Um, and then, you know, that's all you hear? No apology? No acceptance of responsibility? No request for forgiveness? How would you respond? How does God respond? In verse 14, God turns to the serpent. We don't have time to get into the dynamics of the serpent, Satan. His presence in the garden, you know, you need to, uh, to take that at face value for right now and just see God's response. I want you to focus on the Lord here and his response. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a couple of things in the original language that I think are worth noting that the commentators point out very, very clearly uh, we're talking about one singular offspring. Sometimes your translations will read her seed and your seed. And that one offspring is one descendant, one male descendant who we know is Jesus. And Jesus, this ultimate descendant of Eve, who's the son of Mary, will bruise your head uh, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, it's the same word in Hebrew, but the word has a, a range of meaning and to, we need to understand that because the, the wound is on the serpent's head, that's a fatal wound. And because the wound is on the, on the son's heel, that's not fatal. It hurts, but it's not fatal. And so God says that there's going to be a reckoning uh, with the enemy. There's going to be a reckoning for this serpent, for Satan. One day, this descendant of Eve will come and crush the serpent's head. It will be, it will be a mortal wound. And the promise that is here is uh, the first promise of the gospel. It's been called the first glimmer of the gospel. Our fathers and mothers who've gone before us call it the proto-gospel. And this is the first time after sin has entered God's good creation that God makes a promise to do something about it, to bring grace into the situation, right? And this promise is going to be fulfilled by Jesus. This promise by, by ultimately Eve's son, Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph's son, who comes and he enters this world and he crushes the serpent's head in, a, in a, a mysterious and very puzzling way initially because it certainly looks like the path to victory should be, you know, conquering Rome and, you know, victory for all the Jewish community and God's people and God's kingdom being set up and this throne, you know, just in the way that the geopolitical nations all do it. But instead, Jesus goes to a cross Jesus allows his heel to be bruised. Uh, there are numerous, numerous 
accounts, historical accounts of crucifixions practiced uh, by the, the Roman community, um, the Persian community, even the Egyptian community. Like, uh, the historical evidence is there. What's curious is that the archaeological evidence is, is not so plentiful. In fact, there's only two uh, skeletal evidences of crucifixion. You know, um, one very famous one was discovered in Israel. It was an ossuary, a, a bone box. Um, the, after the body decays, they collect the bones, they put it in a box, and they put it in the, in the family uh, tomb. And in this ossuary, there was the remains of uh, a Jewish man who had been crucified. And what's remarkable is among those bones is, is a heel bone. This bone right here on your, on, your, on your foot, the heel. And in that bone, in that ossuary, is a rusted iron nail that goes right through the heel bone. When Jesus was crucified, they nailed him to a cross. Nails went through his hands or his wrists. And nails went through his heel bones. I guess you could say his heel was bruised. And he did that to absorb into his soul, to take on himself the sentence for sin, which is death. That, what, that which Adam and Eve and all of us who descended from them and have sinned in our own ways, we all deserved death, and Jesus took it on himself. So he was our sin substitute, but because he himself was not sinful, he never sinned, he was the perfect new Adam, completely obedient to the Father, the perfect example, the epitome of what it means to be uh, human as God designed it, uh, this, this forerunner of a new humanity in the kingdom of God, because he never sinned, death couldn't hold him. And he rose again from the grave. And that meant, in that victory, in that resurrection, that the mortal wound was, was inflicted on Satan. His head would be crushed. And we're waiting for that ultimate day, that ultimate victory over the enemy when death will die and sin will be no more and we'll, you know, we won't hear any more about an enemy. That's the victory of Jesus that's ultimately how the gospel ends. It doesn't end with Christ in the tomb. It ends with Christ out of the tomb, his victory, and our you know, united to him by faith means that our sins are taken away and that we too can defeat death by faith in him. So how does God respond to Adam and Eve? Well, he pursues them. He didn't just come to them in a garden. I mean, he came to Adam and Eve in that garden, but Jesus comes to us in this wrecked world this wilderness, and he walks among us, and he pursues us in our hiding, in our shame, and he comes to us, and he speaks grace and truth to us. John 1 tells us that we've all seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus was constantly balancing those two things, being incredibly gracious to those who knew that they were in need, and being completely honest about the nature of of their need, the nature of our condition. In Hebrews 2, we're told, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. So Jesus himself likewise 
partook of the same things, our flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth, and Christmas is this evidence that the incarnation is God again pursuing us with that grace and with that truth and asking us the same questions. Where are you? You and I need to hear that question. Not, not addressed to Adam, not addressed to Eve, but addressed to each of us. Where are you? Where are you in relation with God? Are you near to Him? Or are you hiding from Him? Are you far away? Where are you? Do you know the nature of your situation? Do you know your need for Him? Do you know spiritually your need for Him? Do you know relationally your need for Him? Do you know like psychologically, physically, emotionally, your need for Jesus. Where are you? We need to hear God asking each one of us, who told you you were naked? What are you doing with your shame? What are you doing with your failure? What are we doing with our guilt? Are we just trying to cover it up with pretty things? (laughs) Are we trying to hide behind our accomplishments? Are you trying to deny? Just pretend like you don't do anything wrong? Like it's everybody else's fault? Just blaming everybody else for all the things that you know, you know, we know that we do wrong. We need to hear God asking us, what have you done? Because ultimately, if we're not hearing these questions, we're not going to receive, we're not going to understand that he's extending to us this invitation to be honest, right? He's being honest with us. We need to be honest with him and honest with ourselves. And if we're not honest with him, if we're not living in truth, we can't receive his grace. That's a prerequisite. You can't have one without the other. We've got to have great, we've got to have truth in order to have his grace. So are we hearing those questions? Are we living in light of that? You know, it's remarkable. God comes to Adam and Eve, and, and they're, you know, you see their reaction. Their repentance is just awful. <laughs> but it doesn't hold God back. He's not waiting for them, drumming his fingers, you know, when are Adam and Eve going to get with the program and come to me? No, he pursues them. He loves them. He loves us. In all of our imperfection, even in all of our unlovableness, our lovelessness, and he will love us to the end. What must sinners do, asks Alan Ross. Uh, He wrote this book called Creation and Blessing. Uh, I was helped by it. He says, what must sinners do? They must confess their sin and trust in God's goodness for provision of life. What can sinners hope for? They can look forward to release from the curse and anticipate the ultimate victory over evil. That brings us to this whole understanding that Advent isn't just about something historical, even though, yeah, we remember Christ's first coming. Advent means that we're not just remembering the past, we're remembering the future. 
that Christ is coming again. And when he does, listen to Paul's promise to the church in Rome. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul is helping the church to align its hope to the horizon. Jesus is coming again. And yet, while we wait, we're in this sort of not yet phase. It's not, not yet. It's, it's not done yet. And, and so what do we do in the meantime? What difference does this promise ultimately of Satan's head being crushed, the enemy being defeated, no more death, no more, no more temptation, no more sin, uh, a, a garden restored, the, the world the way that it's supposed to be. As we wait for that, what difference do these promises make for us? Well, there's a few things uh, just to conclude with. First is this, you know, God's posture is gracious. He's pursuing us, and He's open toward us, and He's inviting us, come. Don't hide, come. Come out into the light of my, my love. Come out into the light of the gospel, and let's, let's, let's be honest. Let's be truthful, and let's, let's embrace grace. When Jesus, even when He was, I mean, this is remarkable, right? Even as the nails were piercing his hands and piercing his heel bones, even as his heel was being bruised, he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God extends forgiveness. But none of, none of those onlookers, those who were heckling him, those who were calling for his crucifixion, who were participating in the act, who were cheering on the soldiers, the other you know, thieves, you know, the one on the right, the one on the left, it wasn't until the one who repented, that one thief who said, wait a minute, this man didn't do anything wrong. We're getting what we deserve. Not until somebody turns and acknowledges the truth of their situation, where I'm at spiritually, emotionally, relationally, all these different components, how I'm doing in relation to God. Not until we turn from our lostness and our betrayal and our sin and turn to God do we get in on that forgiveness. Do we have a relationship with Jesus? None of those people had a relationship with Jesus until they turned to him. Have you turned to Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? He extends forgiveness to us. Have you received that forgiveness? Have you told the truth about yourself? Have you been honest about your own situation, your own soul's sin and need? You know, Advent, Advent's for sinners. Christmas is for sinners. I know there's a lot of nice things that our culture embraces about Christmas, but the Bible teaches us very clearly that Jesus came for sinners. Joseph named him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. We've got to tell the truth about ourselves. We have to tell the truth to God. I'm, I'm guilty, and it's my fault, and I did this, and would you please forgive me?
and receive that grace as Jesus offers it to you. Are you being honest with God and are you being honest with yourself and are you being honest with others? Like, are we still trying to cover our shame and lay blame on others in, in, the, in our interactions with, with one another or are we receiving from God the, the grace and the truth that he extends to us and then turning and, and giving that to others? And the ways that we interact when we fail and the, and the ways that we interact when, when others fail us. So what about when you fail and when I fail? Do you own it? Do you tell the truth to those you've sinned against? Do you ask for grace? Please forgive me. Or do you blame others? It's not my fault. Do you just ignore the problem, hoping it'll go away? How are you at interacting with those you've sinned against? And then what about when others sin against you? How, like, Jesus and God in the garden, Jesus, when he was here walking among us, you know, was completely intentional with every word and every action. Knew exactly what he was doing, did it with perfection. And maybe we can make it a goal this Advent um, as, a, as a way to, to grow spiritually through the season is to try to be more intentional with our words and our actions, with our own faults and then how we relate to the faults of others. When somebody sins against you, are you waiting, drumming your fingers? When are they going to come to me? When can I lord my innocent position over their guilty position, right? Uh, when are they going to fess up and, um, and so on? Or instead, do you go to that person? Are you waiting for them to apologize before you forgive them? Or are we following the grace and truth that God's extended us? He forgives us before we're asking for it and is ready for a relationship with us. We just need to turn to him. And can you forgive those who sin against you and maintain an open posture to be reconciled to them. Yeah, it, it takes two to have a relationship, no doubt. But forgiving them isn't dependent on their repentance. Forgiving them is dependent on our understanding of how we've been forgiven. And then to move toward them and to pray that God would do something maybe miraculous Maybe pretty wonderful this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us in our understanding of your promises to us, especially as we see your grace and as we see your truth modeled to us in Jesus, that you would come and you would walk among us and that you would pursue us in our hiding and in our shame and in our guilt. We thank you that you have, um, have invited us into a relationship with you, and I pray that everybody in this room uh, is receiving that invitation and making good on it and repenting, even though our repentance isn't very good sometimes. Lord, help us to be more intentional about doing, um, doing truth and grace the way that you call us to do it. Lord, would you um, help us with forgiving others that sin against us and that hurt us in various ways? Some, some people in this room have been hurt in horrible ways. 
But you understand that, that kind of pain. You understand what it feels like to be crucified. Lord, would you bless those who are hurting? Give them the grace to, to extend grace, we pray. And Lord, would you give all of us the grace to continue to walk in truth, to continue to walk in forgiveness, to continue to walk in the gospel. We pray in particular for several families of, of ours at Tabernacle, for Justin and Heather Rogers and for their sons Matthew and Heath. We pray for Frank and Chris Root. We pray for Joe and Don Santana. We pray for Kyle and Laura Sapsford and their new daughter Fusion. Please bless these families. Help them to grow in grace and in truth. Help them to, to grow this Christmas. Help all of us to do that. And Lord, we pray uh, continually for those recovering from surgery, for Bill Landis and Gail Sharp. Please uh, restore their bodies, their mobility, so they can join us here in, in worship, so that they can enjoy Christmas. We thank you for how you are using uh, this body and growing this body. Thank you for our new members. Um, and thank you for the ministry we have to our community, uh, for the food drive um, the past couple of weeks, and the blessing that is uh, to those who are hungry. And we thank you for the foster gifts that we can provide this Christmas. Please help us to be a blessing to those uh, who are without their families. Lord, would you uh, help us as we come to your table now, as we present tithes and offerings. May our hearts be open and honest before you. May we be generous and cheerful. Uh, may you get glory. We ask in Jesus' name.